Are you making critical mistakes when it comes to your financial planning? Whether you're single with no kids or married with a large family, you need to listen to today's guest talk about the four pillars of estate planning. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. Hello and welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and today we're going to be talking with Chris Burke. Chris is an estate planning attorney out of San Diego, California. And while I originally planned to release this episode in a few weeks, I decided to launch this episode this week due to the recent events that happened in Las Vegas. For those of you that don't know, my family and I are based out of Las Vegas, Nevada. And what happened last week was truly heartbreaking and and devastating and horrific. While my family and I are safe, um, a lot of our friends and friends of friends uh, weren't as lucky. And I'd like to just tell my story from a different perspective. I was only a block away from where the event had taken place. And all weekend I had been down on the strip, which is un- unusual. But I'm a part of a group called the Dads Married to Doctors group on Facebook. And just like it sounds, it's a bunch of dads that are married to doctors and they do their annual Vegas trip. And so they were here last weekend and some of them decided to stay over and we went to the Vegas Golden Knights hockey game and then we went out to dinner. And on our way back from dinner, I was saying my goodbyes and I was walking out the door and dozens and dozens and dozens of people just started running in screaming. There's a shooter outside, run, run, run. People are getting shot. And so I grabbed my buddies and we went up into one of their rooms to kind of watch the whole event unfold. You know, it was, it was really tragic and, and sad and, and scary, to be honest. It was really scary. We had no idea what was truly going on. There was bomb threats. There was multiple shooters being announced at New York, New York and Tropicana and uh, the Mandalay Bay. And we were right next door. And, you know, as we watched the events unfold, it was, it was really hard to to think about. It reminded me a lot of nine 11, to be honest, um, you know, helpless and not knowing what's going to happen and what's going on and are we safe or not. And while I wasn't close to the towers at nine 11, I was right next door to this and it easily could have been where my wife and I were there. We go to a lot of country, uh, events, not by choice for, for me. Um, I go to, to support her because she loves country music and I'm not so much of a fan, but I'll, I'll go and do what makes her happy. And, you know, we were fortunate that we weren't there. My wife had to work the next morning in Fresno. And so we decided that we weren't going to do that. And I was going to stay down there and have dinner with the guys. And, you know, as this kind of relates to, to personal finance in this podcast, um, you know, a lot of people don't like to, to talk about the unexpected and that it'll never happen to them. And, you know, they're going to either live forever or they just don't want to have the conversation of what happens if you were, you know, to pass early or if your spouse was to become incapacitated or to pass early. And, 
you know, it's a tough conversation. It really is. And, and I understand some of the reasons why you wouldn't want to talk about it, but by not talking about it, you know, really puts your financial planning in jeopardy, especially if you have kids. Estate planning is critical if you have kids. So with today's guest, we're going to discuss the estate planning process and how it relates to physicians. And we're going to jump into what he calls the four pillars of estate planning, which is wills, power of attorneys, healthcare directives, and revocable living trusts. Before we jump in the interview. Here is this week's digestible tip. Okay, so here's this week's digestible tip. And that is to invite all of you listeners to the private Facebook group that I've set up called Financial Residency VIP Community. Currently, there's hundreds of physicians already in the group asking great questions from things that they heard during launch week, the first three episodes that came out last week. So I encourage you all to jump in there, add to the conversation, ask any questions you may have, the Financial Residency VIP community. See you inside. All right, Chris, thank you. Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, and I appreciate having you on. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. Well, I have done a little bit of an introduction to you before the show started here, but can you do a quick overview on yourself and your practice for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better? Yeah, absolutely. I'm an attorney here in California. I'm based in San Diego. Before you know, we really jump into it, I just want to let all your listeners know that any of the information I give you today, it is based on a general overview based in California law. So as always, you know, nothing that we talk about today is specific legal advice, and you're always encouraged to visit your own attorney of choice to talk about your own specific situation. I've been practicing now for about three years. I started from day one as my own solo practitioner shop, and I've been working with people on different estate planning issues from drafting their estate plans all the way up to administration and probate for yeah, almost going on three years now. It's been quite a while. Awesome. Well, I, you know, I appreciate the quick legal disclaimer. And of course, everyone is supposed to know that this is generic advice. And, uh, you know, it's more educational and entertainment purposes than than uh, legal advice. But, uh, you know, Chris, thank you again for being on and allowing us to get to know you and a little bit more in detail about estate planning. I'd like to kind of jump in from a high level perspective and and just kind of talk about the what I call the four pillars of estate planning, which would be wills, power of attorneys, healthcare directives, and and revocable trusts. So jumping in with some real basic knowledge for our listeners, you know, what is a will and why would they need it? Why is it critical for them to have one? Sure. And you know, a, a really great place to start is understanding that any of these documents, you mentioned the four pillars, wills, powers of attorney, healthcare directives, revocable living trusts, they all are known by different names as well. So when you know we say wills, that's the same thing as a last will and testament. That's the same thing as a pour over will, a holographic will. They're all kind of different terms for really the same document. Mm-hmm. And what that will is going to do for you is essentially create a plan to distribute your property and take care of your affairs upon death. Now, most people don't really like talking about death, thinking mm-hmm. about death, but it's a reality and we're all eventually going to face that. So. The will is your most basic plan for what you want to have happen at that point. And it's really a roadmap for your your family, your loved ones, to be able to really wrap everything up for you. 
Gotcha. Yeah, that's really critical to be discussing here. So how does one set up a will and how often do you know they need to be updated as life kind of changes and, and things like that? Well, the first thing and most important thing that I tell my clients is that the will needs to get set up correctly. Now, each state has specific instructions and requirements that a will has to follow. So it's really easy to miss one of these requirements when putting a will together if you're doing it without proper advice. So number one, that's the most important thing is, is talk to an advisor, whether it be an estate planning attorney or other that really know the ins and outs of what your state requires in putting a will together. The worst case scenario you can look at is put a will together yourself or without proper guidance and come to find out years later, it's not valid. That's not a good situation for anybody. Mm-hmm. With the right guidance, putting together a will is fairly simple. You need to decide a couple things. One, you know, who's going to be your representative to manage your affairs after death? Sometimes that's called an executor, an executrix. Um, here in California, it's called a personal representative. And so you want to decide who that person is going to be. Second, you want to decide what property is going to be distributed to what people. And do you have certain items that are sentimental family items? Maybe they should go to your children, maybe your brother, a sister. Maybe you have certain things or funds that you want to go to friends. Really, it's, it's up to you about how you'd like to distribute your property. And really, that's the, the main thing people tend to think of when they're putting their will together. And one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. And if, and I totally relate to people not wanting to really discuss death. It's a, it's a hard thing. And with my wife and I, it was, it was a difficult decision and it took several conversations to kind of go through it. And is that something that an estate planning attorney will really kind of help walk through is, and handhold's probably the wrong word, but you know, is it something that an estate planning attorney will help with or should people have that as they, you know, already have that plan before they come in? Well, it really depends on, on what aspect of that you're looking at. And some of your other estate planning documents can assist in, in creating the plan around someone's death. Um, really, with a will, that's your roadmap after death. You know what you want to have happen with your property, and like I said, who's going to be in charge of, of wrapping up your affairs for you. Mm-hmm. So you have some other documents like the power of attorney or advanced healthcare directive that are really for more pre-death planning where you're looking at situations that might be leading up to death where you're incapacitated, for example. So generally an estate planning attorney, to get back to your question, will help with kind of creating that plan for you. So going into a situation which you know, might result in death, having a plan covered there as well as after the, the death occurred. Um, so really on both sides, that, that attorney can help put together a comprehensive plan for you to understand what's going to happen. Perfect. Well, you know, I guess what is the the downside of this then? It seems obviously and something I always recommend is to have these kind of four pillars put together by a qualified estate attorney. But, you know, what happens if you die without a will? Well, the good news is, is no matter what state you're in, the state has an estate plan for you. The state law sets out who gets your property, um, who would be the person that would act as your representative. It's a default, essentially. So if you don't get around to sitting down with an estate planning attorney to write your documents out, all is not lost. You do have that default to fall back on, 
but it's not the best case scenario for everyone. For some people, that might be just fine, but for the majority of people, the, the default doesn't really work, and they would like to alter that in some manner. Absolutely. And for the physicians listening, it, it won't work for you. You know, as you're through training and, and building up quite a bit of a net worth and, and nest egg, you know, this becomes more and more important. And I always stress that when kids are involved, all of these things really need to be taken care of. And with that, I kind of want to switch over to healthcare directive, Chris, and just kind of talk high level on what it is and, you know, why it's really critical to get it and, and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. I actually like to talk about the healthcare directive and power of attorney really in conjunction. Perfect. Because I look at both of these documents as your incapacity plan. What that means is a plan that's in place for you to elect to have someone to make a decision on your behalf when you can't do that. Now, let's say that you're in an accident, you're in develop a medical condition where you can't necessarily manage your own property. Um, you know, you can't get to the bank to write a check to pay your mortgage, pay your rent. You're in the hospital and you're not responsive to elect a certain treatment or so you don't want a treatment. Who would be the person that you want writing that check, you know, making that healthcare decision for you? So that's where your power of attorney and advanced healthcare directive come in. They're very similar in that you pick who you want to be your representative. For both, I think it's something that should be a focus, especially for younger people, because chances are there could be something that happens to you that doesn't result in death, but you could be in one of these situations. And having that plan to fall back in is, is really important because otherwise, you know, who would be that person that has to make the decision for you? Is it a brother, a sister, mom, dad? even farther extended family and, and who's to say who you know, really has that authority. It's sometimes a, you know, not a great struggle that families have to enter into to, to make those decisions because they're trying to decide what you would have wanted when you could outline that simply in one of these documents. Mm -hmm. And so with the healthcare directive, I'm basically, let's say, I, I know for mine that my wife, who's also a physician, is going to make all the decisions based on if I'm responsive, not responsive, and all that kind of detail. What happens if something happened to my wife and I, and that she was not able to make her own decisions as well? Is it customary and normal to have multiple backups to that? Or what if you had one and you haven't updated in a while? Where does that default to then? You know, you, you almost might find yourself in the same position as if you didn't have a healthcare directive then. So I always advise my clients that have at least one backup, maybe two. You know, it's not going to hurt to have three. Um, that way you at least have a line of succession where you know that someone's going to be available most likely. Having just one person, you do risk that situation where it's terrible to think about, but what if you and your spouse are in the same car accident and mm -hmm. then who's making that decision. So having at least one other person, I think is critically important in putting together a comprehensive plan using these documents. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So if, you know, uh, knock on wood here that it doesn't happen or that does happen that my wife and I are both in a, in a car accident and she can't make my decisions. And it's almost like we don't have this healthcare directive who would then make the decision. Is it just all on the physician that's, working with us or how does that work? Now, typically um, it's going to be the next closest family member, 
But again, it's really going to depend on state law, depending on where you are and where that accident is and who's available to make that decision. Granted, there's a lot of times in an emergency situation where you, know, you might not be able to reach a family member right away. So it really is important to have these individuals you know, identified in your documents with you know, updated contact information. So if there's a situation that does need to be handled, the appropriate people can get in touch with you know, who your decision maker is. And how would they know these things? Like, it's not like I walk around with my healthcare directive in my back pocket or on my phone. Like, how does the hospitals ultimately figure this out and get down to the details? You mean you don't have a stack of documents folded up in your, in your back pocket? I mean, I try not to. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it occurs, but. You know, one of the things I do offer for my clients is subscription-based services where they will actually store their electronic documents. So a PDF copy of your healthcare directive in an electronic, uh, in the cloud, essentially. And you can actually have a card with the access information for your healthcare directive put right in your wallet. So essentially, you could walk around with access to that right in your wallet. So if that emergency situation does happen, and some states also have developed uh, healthcare directive depositories. I know California does have one where you can upload your healthcare directive to this depository to have it available in case of an emergency as well. But one of the the solutions that I like the best is really using that card. So you have it on you, your healthcare directive is accessible and you don't have a big stack of papers in your pocket. Yeah, I have actually never heard of that. And uh, is, is there a bunch of states that have done that or is it just kind of California leading the charge? You know, I'm not exactly sure if any other states have done it. Again, you do have to rely on the fact that you know, your treating physician would know to, to check that database. I'm not sure how well known it is, but again, not exactly what I would say. I rely on that and advise my clients to rely on it. I think using the the cloud storage and, and having a card with that information on you is one of the best solutions to make sure that that document is accessible at all times for you. Mm-hmm. And when you do identify uh, one, two, three individuals, whether it's spouses or family members, do you advise clients to actually talk with them and say, hey, look, just so you know, I've identified you as this person and these are my wishes and I've outlined my wishes in writing, but, you know, just so you can hear it from me, these are my wishes and, you know, your number one, two or three in line. Do you, do you recommend people do that? Absolutely. Now everyone's family dynamic is different, but your plan is only as good as you make it. So if you really want someone to understand the medical decisions that you would want made for yourself, um, you'd absolutely have to talk with that person about it. There's only so much direction you can really include in the document itself, and we can't plan for every potential or every eventuality that you might face. So having that discussion with the, the people you've identified in, in your healthcare directive is critically important to just get a really good sense to them of how you would want a medical decision made on your behalf. Yeah, that makes, again, total sense. And, you know, I want to switch over real quick before we kind of forget about it is the power of attorney. And the power of attorney is a lot to deal with your assets and not obviously not with your health. And, you know, do kids play inside the power of attorney with custodial agreements and things like that? Well, your power of attorney is going to focus on your financial assets. So think of that as your, your bank accounts, your vehicles, your property. 
With a power of attorney, you're granting your agent the ability to manage that property for you. The power that's passed on in a power of attorney can be limited. So if there's certain things you wouldn't want an agent to do, um, for example, trade stocks you know, in your investment account, and you can put those limitations in. But otherwise, it's like someone standing in your shoes to manage your property. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things you did mention, and I want to make sure that I let your listeners know about this too, is guardianships for minor children. Now, the power of attorney and healthcare directive Neither of those documents are necessarily going to nominate someone to be a guardian for a minor. While the power of attorney might allow someone to access funds to support a minor, it doesn't actually set up that guardianship. So that's something that would uh, normally be done separate for a parent to nominate someone to be appointed that guardian in the event of a situation of incapacity or, or potential death. Yeah, I think when we did ours, and what I was kind of, I guess, alluding to inside of it was the power of attorney to manage the children's, uh, like the funds for the children. So our kids are are now two and a half and one. And if something was to happen to me, I've actually appointed two people. If something happened to my wife, there's still two people behind it to be responsible for the finances of the children. The guardianship who is actually watching the kids is a whole separate document, correct? Right. Now, sometimes people do include that maybe in a will, but I like to actually keep those as separate documents for a couple different reasons. One is just ease of identifying who that guardian is. The second is a will technically doesn't come into effect until after someone does die. So if there's a situation where the incapacity and the guardian needs to be appointed, I'm having that separate guardianship uh, nomination, I think is important. That's interesting. I actually didn't think about how that would actually play out with a will only being enforced when you die and including it in your will. And that uh, that's a good point to make on why that document is needed. We have that separate document, but I didn't actually make that distinction. So I'm, I'm happy you brought that up for everyone, including myself. Yeah, that's a, a real big distinction between wills and power of attorney as well, because your will, again, doesn't come into effect until after death. The power of attorney is in effect before death. At death, that power of attorney extinguishes. So if you have provided power of attorney to someone, their ability to manage your property ends at the point of death, and that's where the person appointed under your will, their authority would pick up. Yeah, perfect. I appreciate the uh, distinction there. So I want to jump over to the last of the of the four pillars here with revocable trusts and kind of talk a little bit more on these because I, I think there's a lot of confusion on when it's applicable, when you should get one, how you should actually fund it and all that. So if you could just like how we've been doing from a high level perspective, kind of tell us a little bit about revocable trust and then we can kind of dig a little bit deeper in, in kind of going through some of the specifics. Sure. Now, the one thing to remember is that a revocable trust is not necessarily a replacement for the other documents that we've been talking about. Typically, and especially for a lot of California estate plans, a uh, revocable trust has been really popular to do in conjunction with your other documents, but it does have differences at, at the same time. Now, um, kind of forgive me for the, the really simplistic example, but this is how I like to think of, of a trust. Perfect. Everyone's been to the beach and, and you know those beach pails you build a sandcastle with, right? Mm-hmm. Big pail has a handle on it. So think about your trust as that, that pail. Now, 
what you're going to use that for is, is you're going to take all of your property. This might be real property. So your house, it could be your bank accounts as well. Um, really anything that you own. And, and we're going to take that and we're going to put that all in the pail. That's your trust. Your trust is holding your property for you. While you're alive, while you have capacity, you're holding on to the handle of that pail. You can put more property into it. You can take property out of it. You're carrying that pail around with you. On the outside of the pail, you've gone ahead and you've written some instructions. Instructions for what you want to have happen to your property in the event of incapacity. Who you want to have your property passed to after death. You also have on there who you want to manage that pail for you when you can no longer carry it. So these are going to be your, your successor trustees later on. When something happens to you, when you become incapacitated after death, those people that you've indicated as successor trustees can go ahead and take that pail from you and, and hold it by the handle themselves. Now, while they have that, they have to follow the directions you've written on the outside. So essentially what you're doing is you're setting up a mechanism where your property can be held. It has a detailed plan of how it should be managed and it has the people that are going to manage it later on. The great thing about this trust or, or your pail is that this is in effect both before death and after death. So it covers both that incapacity and, and after death time where we remember the, the will and the power of attorney didn't cover both time periods um, mm -hmm. respectively. So the great thing about a trust is it's one instrument that really can do the function of both. The downside of the trust is that it only manages that property that you put into the trust. So essentially that property that you put into the pail. I know that one is a long example. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So when we're looking at it, and I, and I kind of want to just quickly summarize is that the trust holds only the assets that you put in it. So, you know, you'll actually have to physically go down to the bank, you know, say you're banking at Wells Fargo, you'll actually have to go into the branch and you'll have to change the vesting, the names on the account from Ryan Inman to Ryan Inman revocable living trust or whatever I end up naming my trust. And you'll actually have to change assets into it. So you'll have to, if you own your home, you'll have to re-record the deed to your home. You'll have to, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but as a state attorney, uh, we'll be able to help you with recording and, and some of these things to change the vesting into the correct uh, trust name, not your personal name. But I'm curious, Chris, do you advise clients to move everything, like obviously their bank accounts and their homes, but should they like move their vehicles and, and anything else into those? Now, that's a, a really good question, and it's also a very complicated question because depending on the type of asset, it might not make sense to be held in the trust. And there's a number of different reasons for that. But to touch on actually moving things into the trust, I think it's one of the most important aspects of, of creating an estate plan and creating a trust is to make sure that it does get transferred in right. So one of the things that I do with my clients is uh, we walk through the complete funding process, whether that's transferring a piece of real property and drafting the deed you know, right in my office to make sure that the titling the vesting is correct. I go ahead and, and work with them to do that because mistakes there can be really costly later on when you have to attempt to move property into a trust 
when potentially you know, someone has passed away and we don't know whether or not their intention was really to put that property in. So it's critically important um, you know, to work with your estate planning attorney to make sure everything is transferred correctly, whether it's you know, a home, whether it's that bank account, or whether you're just upgrading your beneficiaries to a life insurance policy to be payable to the trust. You want to make sure that that, that is done correctly. And now, actually, I want to interrupt you real quick because I want you to go over that point one more time because I think that's actually really overlooked. And so I want you to just touch on it real quick and, and talk about the importance of that. Sure. And, you know, to go back to my, my pail example is if you don't take your property and put it in that pail, the instructions you've laid out in your trust, they're not going to apply to that property. And you may find that that property now has to go through probate. It might you know, be expensive or potentially impossible to, to move that property into your trust. So after you, you know, sign on the dotted line, your trust is printed on the documents and your next step is to make sure that that property is transferred right. So importantly, you will have to change the title. You mentioned going down to your local bank branch and actually changing the name on the account. You will have to do that. Sometimes the bank does require you to close the account, open a new account in the name of the trust. Sometimes they will just allow you to, to change the name. But whatever their process is, uh, you do want to make sure that you follow that to make sure that the title is updated to, to the trust. And typically the way that the property is going to be held is your name as trustee of your trust. And what about life insurance policies? I've got a term life insurance policy, a million bucks on me. Do I need to change the beneficiary to my trust? Or what about my IRAs? Obviously, my wife Taylor's going to be the beneficiary of those. But you know, should I have it be the trust or should I have it be my spouse or in addition to my spouse be the trust? How would you? How do you recommend that to clients? Yeah, again, it's going to be a really specific analysis of your exact situation and what your distribution plan is going to be later on. For example, if you're setting your trust up to support your kids you know, after, after death and your intention is to make sure that their inheritance is protected and it's there to provide for their education, now you might want to have your life insurance be payable directly to the trust. That way you know that money, those funds are going to be available for the purposes set out in the trust. Now, an IRA, a 401k, that might be a little bit different because there are certain advantages to leaving a spouse as a beneficiary that you would lose with transferring either ownership or beneficiary of that policy to the trust. So it's it's a really individualized analysis, and there is no one size fits all uh, you know example or advice that would work for most. Great. Yeah. Thank, thanks for touching on that. And I, I kind of carried it a little bit, but I just wanted to stress that and have it have it really come from you is there is no one size fit all. And that different scenario, that's why personal finance is personal, right? There's no one size fits all that, that truly makes sense. And I actually have a follow-up question, I should say, is I asked if you should move vehicles in there. And, and that kind of comes into liability. Do revocable living trusts protect you from liability or, or from anyone else to claim that property? You know, um, there's different thoughts in, in whether or not a, a vehicle should be transferred into the trust. Here in California, transferring a vehicle after death through the DMV is a fairly easy process, which is surprising for California. But because of that, it's not as important to transfer that vehicle into the trust. And in a lot of cases, uh, we advise that clients 
uh, actually keep their personal vehicle outside the trust. Now, if it's a collector you know, uh, vehicle, if it's a, a high value vehicle that fits more into that that description, you know, then it might be a good idea. But for your everyday you know, driving car, uh, usually it's not necessary to transfer into the trust. To go into the second part of your question about you know, liability protection, that is actually a fairly improperly understood area about estate planning. When you put your revocable living trust together, there is no additional liability protection that you're receiving. So, for example, moving your house into your trust is not going to protect your house any more than if you were holding as an individual, for you as an individual. So if, if you get sued, you know any of your assets that could be used to satisfy a judgment against you, just because they're in their living trust is not going to provide protection. Where a living trust does, and I say living trust, I'm sorry, again, going back to how there's multiple names for, for these types of documents, revocable trust and living trust are, are sometimes used interchangeably. But where the trust does provide liability protection for you is for your beneficiaries. Now, if you set a trust up in, in your children or your beneficiaries after death, that trust can provide protection for their inheritance. So, for example, if your child is sued later on, if they are in a situation with a divorcing spouse, for example, those trust assets, while they're still in the trust, do have a measure of protection uh, where they wouldn't otherwise be protected if they were directly given to your beneficiaries. That's uh, a, a great distinction to make. And I appreciate you going back and, and saying, you know, the difference between revocable and living trusts. And it's almost everything in in the finance world or in, in really insurance and, and everything, it's almost meant to confuse the consumer. And it's kind of frustrating how there's so many different names and so many different things that are happening. So again, I appreciate you going to it. And I want to ask one kind of follow-up on this is, we haven't really talked on it, but irrevocable trusts. Is there any, I guess, just tell me a little bit about that. And then is there any liability protection from those? And when would someone look at, at even having an irrevocable trust. Right. So there are, there are a lot of different situations which might call for an irrevocable trust. And the biggest distinction is really just in the name. So irrevocable versus revocable, it's obvious why they're different. Revocable trusts can be revoked. If I create a, a revocable trust today, I can revoke it tomorrow. There's no generally no negative implications for me there. If I create an irrevocable trust, it's just like it sounds it's irrevocable. I can't unilaterally decide in most cases that I want to do away with this trust and revoke it. Now, a lot of times irrevocable trusts are used for tax planning where certain assets may need to be taken out of the estate in order to minimize potential estate taxes at death and for a number of different reasons as well. One important thing to remember is when you do create your revocable living trust now, at death, that trust actually does transfer into being irrevocable. So after you pass, your your beneficiaries can't unilaterally go ahead and change the terms of that trust, can't revoke it uh, just because they want to. That's a great point to make and I think a huge distinction that needs to be addressed. Thank you for that. And now it's time for the curbside consult. This physician is just about to start working a locum's job and is wondering if they should set up an LLC to protect themselves from liability as well as setting up a solo 401k. Their question is, is this worth doing? To preface this, you don't need to go too much into the the solo 401k and, and why. 
setting up one of those. We're going to discuss that in a later episode, but I definitely wanted to ask you this and get this question out there because I think this is a common misconception around LLCs. Sure. You know, going back to my answer that I use too often is, is it depends. Um, it's really going to depend on what state that physician is going to be working in and where they want to set that LLC up. Now for California, for example, a physician cannot actually set up an LLC under which to practice medicine. Um, it's, it's just not allowed. The problem though is in setting up that LLC, the secretary of state, which accepts LLC filings, isn't going to necessarily tell you that you can't set up that LLC. So you may go ahead and, and set that up only to find out that that's not a allowable form of business to actually practice it. So for professionals, physicians included, lawyers, accountants, and even veterinarians, the options for types of business entity really are professional corporation, partnership, and sole practitioner for the most part. In other states, there could be different types of business entities that someone could set up. But the most important thing to remember here in California is even if you were to set up that business entity, it doesn't shield you from all liability. Now, for a practicing physician, one of the biggest areas of liability is likely malpractice. Setting up a business entity is not going to shield you from any professional malpractice that you might commit. It can shield you from you know, non-medical related liability, such as if you enter into a contract with a, a business supplier or an employment issue. But again, it's not gonna shield you from that malpractice. So in deciding if it's worth it to set up that business entity, what this physician might wanna do is balance the, the cost of setting up maintaining that entity with any potential savings they might see in taxes and the hassle of, again, maintaining the entity for what their potential exposure is for liability. Yeah, that's a perfect answer. And it, it is definitely a common misconception on on setting that up. And and I know I didn't ask you more on the solo 401k, but you know the, the liability standpoint and everyone kind of defaults to, oh, we'll just open up an LLC. And that doesn't always apply. And while it does allow you to open the solo 401k and, and to fund it to lower tax, liability and, and to help shield you from from the tax side of things, it doesn't shield you from general liability and malpractice. And I think that's a huge distinction to remember. Right. And sorry, I got carried away on, on the liability front and I forgot to mention the, the solo 401k. But you know, in California, if you were to decide to set up a, a professional corporation, and that could be a route in order for you to set up a 401k or other retirement plan which you otherwise wouldn't be able to contribute to if you were acting as a sole practitioner or as a partner. Yeah, and that'll allow you to shield a, a ton of income and, and put it in a tax-deferred status. And while it seems like the generic default, that might not be applicable to everyone. But if you are making a, a decent amount of money and would like to have some of that be tax-deferred and, and are able to actually open and fund it, then opening up an LLC might might make sense. But just from the protection side, it, it really doesn't protect you from the liability that you might think it would. So, Yeah. And again, you really want to be careful in the state you're opening that business entity, because if you are, say, in California and you're uh, a physician and you're opening an LLC, that's not an allowable business entity for you to be practicing under. So that may not even protect you from any liability, whether it's medical practice related or not. 
because you're not in the right type of business entity. So it's, it's really important to sit down with an advisor who understands the difference. And I definitely am a believer in sitting down with your financial advisor and uh, in, in setting this up as well um, to make sure you're number one in the right business entity to be able to put your financial plan into place as well. So really working in conjunction, I think, is, is extremely important. Yeah, it's a, a great point to make. So generally, what would your recommendation be for a physician in California if they had the ability to do maybe some moonlighting or um, some locums work that they would open up if it wouldn't be an LLC? Well, the physician would have an option of, of operating under essentially three different business types. That's You can operate as a sole proprietor, which is anyone who would be going out and, and doing work, they're, they're automatically sole proprietor. If you're working with someone else, the default really there is you're in a partnership. And if you want to form a business entity, really your only option is the professional corporation here in California. Um, now, other states might have different options, but really that's the only three uh, that you do get to choose from here, here in California. Great. Yeah, great, great advice there. So the second question here is, uh, I'm a single physician and I don't have any kids. How much estate planning do I really need? And should I even set up a revocable trust? It depends. Again, you're going to hear that a lot from me still. We're going to look at really what your plan is. You might not have kids, but maybe you have family members that are going to depend on you um, later on in life. Maybe you have nieces and nephews that you, know, you really want to help with their education. In those situations, putting something together like a, a revocable living trust might really help for you to, to create that plan where you know, not having an estate plan really wouldn't allow you to craft a forward-thinking, you know, what-if scenario. Without any estate plan, again, you're going to default back to however the state says that your property should be distributed. So those nieces and nephews that you might have wanted to help through college, they probably are not going to get any property if something happens to you you now. Your you know, extended family members that you are going to help you know, later in life, they're probably not going to be beneficiaries of your property in, under that default plan. So just because someone doesn't have kids doesn't necessarily mean they don't have other priorities in life that may be really important for them to plan for. That's great advice, Chris. And, you know, looking at it, with you know younger physicians that I tend to work with over at Physician Wealth, the common question that I get around a lot of estate planning is, you know, I don't feel like I have enough net worth to open up a revocable trust, or I, I'm right now I'm negative net worth. Why would I open up a revocable trust right now? Yeah, absolutely. It's really going to go back to what your specific plan objectives are. You might have a negative net worth, but you've also purchased a term life insurance policy. So at your death, maybe you will have, have a state that you do need to plan for. So just because you, you don't necessarily have the funds now doesn't mean you don't necessarily have them in the future. And the one thing we didn't mention as well is probate. Mm -hmm. That sometimes people look at as kind of a dirty word that no one really wants to find themselves in. Mm -hmm. But probate is the court process that people will enter into after death. So whether you have no estate plan, whether you have put a will together, both of those situations are gonna find you in probate. In California, probate is kind of a long process. It's you know six months, potentially longer, where your family is going to have to wait for the court to 
approve on any distribution of property, decide who that's going to go to. So maybe you are this younger physician and, and maybe you don't have a lot of assets, but you still might find yourself in probate or, well, I'm sorry, you won't find yourself there, but your family will find themselves in probate trying to settle your estate where a revocable living trust can actually avoid the probate process for any of that property that you put in the trust. So the trust actually acts completely separately, you know, allowing your family not to be you know, in court for six months, 12 months, potentially longer, because it's completely administered outside of the court system. So another really great reason that someone may want to put a trust together. Yeah, that's uh, that's excellent. I, I can't believe we forgot to skip over uh, or that we skipped over probate. So thank you for addressing that. The last question that I have here is, the husband and I are both physicians and we have a one-year-old daughter with another one on the way. We have basic wills set up, but really nothing else. How do we go about updating our wills to add our next child into it? And what else should we be looking at to add with respects to estate planning? Yeah, the first thing I really want to stress is if someone does want to change any of their estate planning documents, including their will, the thing they should never do is never cross anything out, never handwrite something in, because that creates all sorts of problems. In almost every state, probably every state, there are specific requirements that have to be met in order for a will or a trust to be valid. And, and simply crossing information out in any of those documents is not going to meet those requirements. So I really want to make sure that, that, that I did mention that because I've seen it time and time again. So making that change to your will is really fairly simple. If that new child is born and you want to update these estate planning documents, you can execute what's called a codicil, which is simply just an amendment to a will. And actually, a trust is, is amended in the very same way. It's really just an additional document that says what that change is going to be and signed in the same manner that the original document was signed, whether it's a will or a trust. So it's not a complicated process to go through. And sometimes people might have multiple changes they want to make as well. So in that scenario, it might just make more sense to, to draft a new will or you know, a, a replacement trust. So it really depends on the circumstances and the level of complexity that's in your changes. Now, one of the things that really you know, stands out to me for, for this physician is they have, or they're going to have two very young kids. Now, with just wills in place, if both parents you know, do pass away, they still have minor children's support. With no real direction on how their assets should be used to support their children. You know, adding in a revocable living trust can really be helpful in this scenario because both of these parents can decide, you know, for what purposes trust funds should be used. Maybe it's the education of their children. Maybe it's for medical reasons. Uh, maybe it's for just general support. And then when those you know, kids reach certain ages, you know, additional funds from the trust can be released. So a popular way that people decide to, to pass money on to, to their children is, you know, once those children become of age, they pick certain you know, birthdays, certain milestones where they want to give gifts of, of whatever property is left in the estate at that point. So that's, to me, the, the biggest planning opportunity that these two might have is really to, to beef up their estate plan, add to those wills, put a revocable living trust in place where they can have a more detailed plan if something should happen to them. 
that's a perfect answer, Chris. And, and I really, really appreciate it. I think the listeners definitely, if they didn't know what estate planning really entailed before this episode, they, I think they got a great overview and, uh, you know, Chris, where can people learn a little bit more about you if they want to reach out to you, want to work with you, or just want to get some more information? Absolutely. Um, I do my best to answer, you know, any questions that, that I can. They can find my information right online at mylawyerchris.com. Uh, that's my website, and it has the rest of my contact information right up there. Perfect. Well, I'll make sure to include it in the show notes. And thank you again so much for being on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, and, and I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Ryan. has some great questions, and, and I appreciate the uh, opportunity to uh, share a little bit about estate planning. Uh, it shouldn't be as scary as people think. I definitely agree. And I think the more they get educated, the easier it will be to want to reach out and to want to know what is going on and how to basically set up their financial lives and, and to protect themselves and their kids if they have some. Absolutely. Well, Ryan, thanks again. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That was a great show with Chris. I know that was a lot of information to cover, but I think he did a really great job of explaining what he calls the four pillars of estate planning, which are wills, power of attorneys, uh, healthcare directives, and uh, revocable living trusts. I know this is a conversation that most people don't want to have, but it really is necessary. You need to know what's going to happen to you, your assets, your children, you know, if you were to pass. I really want to thank Chris for being on the show. If you guys have any questions, again, join our Facebook community, the Financial Residency VIP community uh, group on Facebook. Pop in, ask your questions, participate in the discussions, and I look forward to seeing you guys next show. Next show, we are going to have a good friend of mine, Tim Baker, who is a financial planner for pharmacists. And we're going to be talking about fee-only versus fee-based financial planning. It's a super hot topic, and it's something I think that most people don't really know the difference between the two and usually always have questions for. So I hope you guys enjoy next week's show. Um, I hope you enjoyed this week's show, and I look forward to seeing you inside the Facebook community. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.